Now imagine this, you're a young woman in your 20s, you're in the fashion business, you have a store, you are making things you love, they're selling, you're doing great, and your father comes along and tells, sits you down and says, no, 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 this is not a way to make a living. You're not gonna be able to do this forever. And you're like, wait a minute, like I'm at the top of the world, I'm killing it, I'm doing great. But you actually stop and listen to your dad and you decide to go back to school and you become a neuroscientist and then along the way, you are a psychotherapist and you're making good money just like your daddy wanted you to. And you come across this idea that might help people to meditate and calm their mind and actually get themselves to sleep. So I am really, really excited to bring to you Ariel Garten, who created the Muse product, which is a piece of technology, like a little headband that you wear on your head. And it helps you map out when you're in meditation. One of the big issues with meditation is, how do I know I'm actually doing it right? That's one of the big issues all the time. You know, any of you who know me know I'm a big meditator. I really believe it helps with everything. And I remember when Ariel launched that product, because we wrote about it back at Moore many years ago when she first launched it. This is the first time I've met her. She's so interesting and so smart. You're gonna love this conversation with her. And she talks not only about her personal reinvention, but about how she had to reinvent her way toward um, getting this product launched. And how when you get a product that is great and is hitting the market, you're constantly reinventing it. It doesn't just stop there. So let's welcome Ariel Garten. So Ariel, nice to see you. It's a pleasure to be here. Hi. Yeah, I've been following you for a while, so I'm really excited about this. So let's talk about your reinventions. As you said, it's quite a few. Um, but what I was so interested in is you're a neuroscientist now, but you actually had a little way, way station in the fashion business, among other things. So let's talk about where did you grow up and, and how did you end up where you are today? What and, and how did you make that stop through fashion? Sure. So I grew up in downtown Toronto. My family business was real estate, just very small scale buying a house, renovating it, renting out apartments, like just very, very small scale. So I started learning the entrepreneurial path through my parents. And when I thought about what I wanted to be entrepreneurially, I loved clothing. So as a teenager, I started to make my own clothes, even though I couldn't really sew. And I started to come up with great ideas. And I just had the brash gall to say, hey, I could be a clothing designer. And so I started taking my shirts around to stores. They started picking them up. I then got a dressmaker, could pay her um, a little bit of money that I was making to get her to actually sew things nicely. And that began my clothing line. And what kind of clothing was it? Shirts? It branched out into a full line. So by the time I was 23 years old, I was doing Fashion Week every season, Toronto Fashion Week. I was selling oh a God. full line of clothes actually across North America. Oh my goodness. Okay. 
So why didn't you stick with that? What happened? So my dad pulled me aside and said, look, clothing, I know you're 23. It feels like you're on top of the world. You know, you've, you're selling clothes all over. You're in the newspaper for it. But this is not going to create a lifestyle that's going to be comfortable for you to live in. Like the economy of it was so terrible. <laughs> it's really not a money-making proposition. And he pulled me aside and said, you have to close. At that time, I even had a retail store, a very, very small storefront. He said, you want to close this all. You want to do something else for your life. And at this point, I thought he was completely nuts. I'm like, you know, I'm on top of the world. For some stupid reason or very smart reason, I listened to him. I closed down my clothing business. At this time, I had finished university and I actually did a degree in neuroscience while I was in university. And so I had that moment of what am I going to be? And I knew I wanted to do something with the brain. Um, so I went and I got trained as a psychotherapist, realizing that, you know, that's something to do with the brain where you could make good money, 150 bucks an hour being a therapist. And throughout the training as a therapist, I started to work in a research lab with Dr. Steve Mann. He is one of the inventors of the wearable computer, and he had an EEG system that let you actually uh, track your brain state. And I began to work with him. And from there, I graduated as a psychotherapist, started my psychotherapy business, was doing well, um, but continued to work with this early brain computer interface system. And at a certain moment, I said, hold on, this is where my business is going to be. I can completely see taking this out of the lab and commercializing it. And that became the early technology for Muse. So explain what Muse is so people understand what it is. And... Um, talk a little bit about the technology. Cause I remember, as I said to you, doing something with Muse back that had to be five or six years ago. When did you launch? Yeah, so we launched uh, in 2014. Our first mm -hmm. device was in market in Best Buy. Mm -hmm. So what Muse is, it's a brain sensing headband that helps you meditate and sleep. So Muse tracks your brain during meditation and gives you real-time feedback to know when you're meditating. So for those people who sit there wondering, am I doing it right? Like what's going on in my brain during meditation? Muse actually gives you real-time feedback by translating your brain activity into guiding sounds to let you know when you're focused and when your mind is wandering to help you either start or enhance your meditation practice. And you were selling in Best Buy at that point? You went right to Best Buy? We launched in Best Buy Canada in 2014. Yep. Oh my God. That's huge. <laughs> Talk about a reinvention. Right, exactly. And so what was the response to that? And do you have you gone any further than that? Or is that the only product? And what has been the, the sort of path for that product? Because people have gradually come around to meditation. And I wonder, has it exploded during the pandemic? It really has. So I started working, I closed my clothing business in 2005. I started working with Muse kind of around 2007, um, 2009, we incorporated. It took us until 2014 till we could actually create the product. And I was working as a psychotherapist at the same time as building the business. We launched in 2014. And since then, we're, we have half a million users around the world who use Muse regularly. So, you know, everything from athletes, big CEOs, people who use it in a corporate context, we got so incredibly lucky that we were there at the right moment in the market. By 
2012, meditation was starting to be something that people were talking about. By 2013, it was on the cover of Time magazine. And now I don't have to tell you, in 2021, everybody knows that meditation is something that's good for you and something that you should be doing. But most people still have difficulty establishing their practice because it still seems like this ill-defined thing. So we are able to bring science and real metrics to the practice of meditation. And it really worked. And so what were some of the barriers for you to getting that off the ground? And um, there must have been, you know, as we know, being entrepreneurs, it's, you know, throw spaghetti at the wall, pivot, throw spaghetti at the wall, pivot. What were some of your, some of your spaghetti moments and what were some of your pivot moments? Sure. The barriers were quite tremendous. I mean, I am a small female in downtown Toronto back in, you know, 2009, 2010, we didn't have a startup ecosystem here. And so I was trying to commercialize this technology, which I could see clearly was going to have applicability. And we weren't entirely sure what we were going to do with it, like what was going to be the best product. And so I knew we needed to raise money, but we still didn't totally have the right product. We actually thought that initially the technology was going to help you um, be a cognitive training tool, essentially. It was before meditation was a big thing. And so we'd go into VC meetings and they'd be like, okay, what's this going to do? They're like, is this like meditation? And we'd be like, yes, do you like meditation? They're like, meditation's never going to make money. (laughs) Like, what's the killer app for this? But they're like, meditation. And it turns out that in 2020, meditation truly was the killer app. And it was only once we actually went in 2012, I went to a conference um, called Wisdom 2.0 that was the intersection between wisdom and technology in San Francisco on the Google campus. And I met the guy at Google who first introduced meditation into Google. And he gave us our first VC funds, um, our first like angel investing check. And from there, I was able to take that and parlay it into raising $18 million by 2015 for this technology and for this company. And so we've had so many spaghetti against the wall moments where you're like, okay, you know, I can see the value here. I know this is something that people need, but we need to really figure out how we like make a device that's going to work effectively on everybody's head, how we're able to um, create algorithms that are going to really work, how we can create an experience that adds to meditation rather than takes you away for it or feels technological. We need to, you know, put together a massive team. We now have 50 people and manufacturing in China and customer care and all of these things. And it's been uh, an incredible warren of pivots. But the thing that has always been consistent in this is my belief that this is possible and my belief that I could actually bring together the team to make it happen. So what does it actually do for you? Can you can you explain for all those people? I'm a big meditator. I've been doing um, TM for God, I want to say maybe now it's like seven years, something like that. Um, but for those people, I mean, I really do believe that it would help so many people, but they they literally don't know the difference between all the meditations we at Covey have published a few pieces about that to clarify for people, you know, and it, it's whatever kind of meditation you like and works for you is my opinion. And, but how does this actually help you with that? And then I want to talk about sleep, which is a giant issue for women of this age. Sure. 
So how Muse works in the same way that a Fitbit will sit on your wrist and track your heart rate and your steps, Muse sits on your forehead in a little headband and it's able to track your brainwave activity. Now, when you meditate, meditation is not just about your mind going blank and you know waiting for enlightenment to come. In meditation, what you're actually doing is you're learning to observe your thinking. So in a focused attention meditation, which is one of the types of meditation that you can do with Muse, what you do is you put your attention on your breath, your mind eventually wanders away from your breath, you notice that your mind has wandered, and then you choose to bring your attention back to your breath and stay there. Eventually your mind wanders again, you notice and you return. And kind of that noticing and returning, that is the work of the meditation. That's what's building your skill of focused attention, metacognition, et cetera. What we do with Muse is we make this process audible. So when your attention is focused on your breath, you hear quiet, peaceful noises. As your mind begins to wander, the sound picks up, which is your cue to know that, oh, your mind is wandering. You're then cued to let your attention return back to your breath until the next, and the sound goes quiet. And then your mind wanders again, sound picks up. You're like, oh, my mind is wandering. And you return to your breath. So it's really teaching you what to do. It's showing you when your mind is wandering, reinforcing you to maintain that focused attention on your breath, which is kind of the meditation state. And then after the fact, it gives you data, charts and graphs and scores that show you what your brain was doing so you can gain further insight into your practice. It's kind of like having a little coach or guru inside your head, actually showing you what to do and encouraging you for doing it right. And can you see by, have you studied the maps that people get, have you seen that they get better at it? Absolutely. So there's over 200 published studies with Muse. Um, you know, it's been used by, I must say, most major research institutions. Mayo Clinic has done multiple studies with it. So they did a study with breast cancer patients awaiting surgery using Muse uh, prior to surgery and afterwards. And they demonstrated that the use of Muse decrease their stress and their fatigue during the cancer care process and improve their quality of life. Um, so we've had lots of studies with Muse demonstrating that the use of Muse improves your attention, decreases your stress, uh, can even improve your cognitive function and is as effective or more effective than a traditional meditation practice. Let's talk about, you say it can be used for sleep. Sleep is one of the things that gets just disrupted at this stage of life, especially for women going through perimenopause or menopause. It's really a problem. I know I, I would, started feeling it. I'm there too. Okay, okay. So what do you do? Like, what does Muse do for you in that situation and how can you use it to help? Sure. So we started to go into the path of sleep because we were hearing from consumers that they were using their Muse meditation before going to bed in order to help them sleep better and it was working. So what we did was we created a purpose-built device called Muse S that you can actually wear to fall asleep in. And we give you guided meditations and visualizations that are actually paired with a biofeedback soundscape from your body that are designed to entrain you to fall asleep faster. So I've just been doing a actually 300 person study with a large engineering firm using our Muse go to sleep intervention, demonstrating that yes, it helps people fall asleep faster, stay asleep longer and uh, wake up less often in the night. And how it does that is by both um, 
consciously teaching you to quiet your racing mind. So most people say, why can't I sleep? It's because my mind is racing. Um, and it also intuitively teaches you with biofeedback to slower your slow your body's heart rate and breath rate, et cetera, to guide you into sleep. And we found it to be extremely effective. And it then tracks your sleep throughout the night. And in the morning, you can see the quality of your deep sleep, how long you slept, how long it took you to fall asleep, et cetera. And what about getting you back to sleep if you wake up? It does that really well. Um, so if you wake up in the middle of the night, um, if you still have the device on, or even if you've taken it off, you can use the same intervention that helped you fall asleep. And what I've been seeing in the study cohorts is it actually decreases the amount of time people are awake in the middle of the night. So talk a little bit about, were there any kind of barriers to you getting into this? Did you run into issues with being female? We know that most female, most female inventors don't get funded. It's what, less than 3%? Yep. And um, what did you find when you were trying to go out there for money? There were so many barriers to this business, I can't tell you. As I mentioned, you know, I'm a I'm a five foot two little female from Toronto. It's, it's, I didn't exist in San Francisco. I didn't have a business degree. I wasn't, you know, well known for my prowess in tech. Um, and so in creating this business, I really had to rely on myself and my deep knowledge that whatever I needed to do, I could either figure it out or hire somebody to help me do it. So I overcame a lot of the barriers by being able to find competent talent who understood manufacturing, who understood go-to-market, who understood marketing, et cetera, and bringing them onto the team. And I think I was able to convince VCs to give me money um, because we had a technology that worked. So I had a great CTO that was able to make the technology actually work. Um, and I had just such an unending belief in myself and deep passion for the fact that not only was this possible, but this was going to happen, um, that people trusted my um, tenacity and gave me money for it. Now, when you say that, what you knew it was going to happen, are you one of those manifest people? God, was it no. that kind of? No. Okay. Explain to me, because I have a lot of people and it does work. It definitely works where people manifest and they say it works for them. But what do you mean when you say that? I had just the deep belief in myself that I could make this happen. That this was something that the world needed. And if we only worked hard enough on it, if we only turned over every single stone, if we only persisted, we could make this happen. And there were a lot of signs along the way, and I don't mean spiritual signs, you know, there were a lot of signs along the way that this was going to work. People said, yes, we like this. Yes, we want this. Yes, this is fascinating. Yes, we need to know about this. And I was really listening to those yeses. There were also a lot of no's. You know, there are a lot of people who could have easily said, you're absolutely crazy. I heard a lot of no's, you know, that many, many, many VCs weren't willing to give me money, probably rightly so. Um, but from each and every one of those no's, I learned. I learned what their objections were. I learned what the hesitations were. I pivoted, I figured it out. And I was able to bring on board the people whose visions were aligned with mine and 
you know, continually get enough funding to get the plane off the ground and the product built. Can you give an example of the actual yeses along the way that you were surprised by? Like, what were the things that people said that made you think, ah, okay, we are going to get there? Do you have any stories? My first VC pitch in New York City, not my first VC pitch, but the first one that I did in New York City, the investor was sitting in across from me on the table. They went up and they started writing on their whiteboard and they started to discuss the structure of the company because we are based in Canada and it's hard to get at that point US investment. And they started to draw out the structure of a Canadian company versus an American company. And they said, when we do this and we do that. And from that moment, I knew he was going to invest when he started to use the royal we and bring himself on the team. And he was so engaged by the vision of what we said we could create that he wanted to enable this vision for the world. Yeah, I've, I've been fascinated by the word we. Um, what's really interesting is I did a deep dive into the Covey membership over the pandemic, interviewing my best customers. And there were a few of them that started talking about we, which I was like, wow, that's great. <laughs> I was like, really? It's very cool. What about one of the negatives? Give me your most interesting negative story. And when you say, because I really want people to understand what's the tactical to how you overcome a negative? Because you could say there's so many negatives and we got over them, but like how? Like give us a story. Sure, there's lots of them. So on VC investing, for example, um, my very first VC pitch, so we needed to raise money. I went to our local incubator, Mars, and they taught me how to pitch. They put the deck together. We did a ton of practice. Um, I started pitching in Boston because I was actually invited to speak at MIT. And so I was like, okay, I got to do this. You know, there's VCs in Boston. I'll go to Boston. I reached out. I had an intern reach out to literally every VC in Boston with our pitch. There was only a few of them that came back that said that they wanted to speak to us. Um, most of them were Canadian and they were like, you know, willing to, <laughs> willing to give a leg up to a, a fellow Canadian. Um, I became friends with several of them while I was there and, you know, continued to then use them for help and support and relationships. But along the way, I figured, okay, I should do a practice pitch before I go and do these real pitches in Boston. And so I reached out to uh, Canada's biggest VC, Omers, and I said, there's no way in the world they will ever invest in me because like they're Omers and I have this small weird, weird business. And so I did my first pitch. I was pretty nervous. Um, it didn't go very well because I didn't think it was going to go very well. Um, it was awkward, but I also didn't kind of care. Um, after that, you know, I went out for lunch with the guy, became friends with him. We continued on our relationship and, you know, learned from it. We're able to talk candidly about how the pitch went, what was awkward about it, what wasn't, and really build the relationship from that point. And they then led my series B round. Wow. Awesome. What else can you tell people who are interested in doing what you did, Ariel? They may find themselves, you know, they might be in fashion, they might be a psychologist, they might be, you know, doing something else. What are the analogous things that they can pick up from how you transitioned to 
apply to themselves. Like if you were talking to one of your bestest, oldest buddies about what you learned, the do's and the don'ts, what would you say those are? Sure. So I keep going back to this idea of belief in yourself, but it really is key. Frankly, the biggest thing that holds us back in our life is the limiting beliefs that we carry. The beliefs that, oh, I'm not good enough. Oh no, they're not gonna like me. Oh no, I did something wrong. I'm embarrassed. I should never reach back out to them again. It's all of these stories that we tell ourselves that create these prisons and these boxes in our own mind. You know, particularly as women, we are very driven to want to be liked, to not want to screw up, to not let anybody see that we're less than perfect. Um, And so that drives us to feel embarrassed and awkward if any of these things ever arise. And so I think the biggest lesson for me, first, when I was young, I had a ton of confidence and really didn't see my screw ups. And now through many, many, many years of, as a, of a meditation practice in my mid forties, I can now see my screw ups and own up to them and not be embarrassed by them and not want to run away from them. And so my advice really is to, as, as silly as it seems, let go of our egos and let go of our fear of not being seen as perfect and our fears of not being good enough. Um, And to know that actually each and every one of us truly is good enough, truly is capable. We are all such incredibly capable individuals. And when we let go of the stories that we tell ourselves of needing to be seen as perfect or needing to be seen as right or needing to be seen as competent, then a new kind of humility and returning to the point of failure can arise which allows you to actually engage in subjects, get over the barriers and do the things that are actually going to move you forward. Talk a little bit about that perfection thing. Do you think, I mean, there is a thing going on and I'm sure you're aware of it with young girls and they have this, what is it called? Limitless perfection where they feel that they, you know, in college, at the college level, they have to be perfect, they have to look perfect, they have this double whammy, whereas the guys, all they have to do is get through, right? Is that a female thing? Or are you seeing that across the board? Was that, and how did you have so much confidence? Was that because you grew up that way? Or did you train yourself to be that way? Great question. So, This particular brand of perfectionism I'm talking about really is a female thing. And I think we can all identify with it. Um, I know I certainly identified with it. And I had teachers in high school who, you know, I couldn't, they loved me so much. I couldn't actually do their homework because I was so scared that it wouldn't be good enough and they might stop loving me as much. (laughs) Like It was deep. Um, But at the same time, I had this deep confidence in myself And I had the ability to really silence my inner critic. So, you know, those stories that you typically have of, oh, you know, if you do this, it's not going to be good enough. Oh, no, you know, they're not going to like me. I somehow found a mechanism inside of myself to silence that. And now with the meditation practice, I can see, you know, I, I see the dialogue with myself. I see the mechanisms and I can really go in and unearth them and and shut down those mechanisms in a much more effective way. Um, I actually have a podcast. I have a podcast called Untangle and I have an episode with Dr. Maya specifically on women's confidence. And I also lead 
a small practice that actually teaches you to quiet and kill your inner critic. So I highly recommend listening to those Untangle episodes because they will like give you a point by point of what to do to create the sense of confidence and quiet that voice that holds you back. So it doesn't come just from how you were raised. You can actually go, I love kill your inner critic. I love that. May I'm going to invite you to come teach that for an hour one time in the fall. It's, oh, I um, absolutely will. I'm happy to come on and actually walk everybody through the episode, through the exercise of how you kill your inner critic. It's I so love good. that because that is what I think that is holding a lot of women back. A lot of older women tell me, just like what you said, you said I was, I used to be, you know, so confident. I didn't even see my failures. A lot of women tell me that they're, as they get older, their confidence is suddenly eroded. Have you heard that? I have heard that. And, you know, in some ways I've even seen and felt that myself. And maybe that comes in part from the loss of beauty and the loss of youth and a sense of maybe like a loss of place. Some of it comes from, in one sense, motherhood gives you so much more confidence. And the other hand, motherhood also means that you have a whole other set of tasks that you need to do that in some ways make you feel less confident and capable at the jobs that you used to be good at, like your jobs at work. And so it really is a project throughout your lifetime of, of looking at yourself and the stories that you tell yourself and, and the ways that you feel competent and capable and continuing to sort of reinvent your own self-narrative to keep yourself in a place where you understand that you are doing your best and that you can manage what's going on and that you can shift and change and grow in ways that are helpful. What else would you tell someone who is trying to do what you did? Say they have, they're, they're not necessarily a tech person, but they have a great tech idea. And we know that everybody wants to invest in tech today. What do they do? Do they go out and find a tech partner? Like, what would you recommend? Yeah. So the first thing to do to note is you don't have to do it on your own. Reach out and talk to everybody about your idea. People are sometimes afraid that like, oh, if I tell somebody my idea, they're going to steal it. Believe me, no one's going to steal your idea because to take this idea to reality is going to take a lot of work, sweat, passion, et cetera. So don't worry about it. Talk to people about your idea. Get them on board. Understand exactly the need that you are filling with this idea. So it's great to have an idea, but exactly who's your target market? What is the need that you're filling? Like, how is this going to make somebody's life better? Talk to your target market. Understand exactly what it is. And then luckily now there are literally dozens of incubators and accelerators that are created simply to help and support your business, tech business or otherwise, come to life. And at incubators and accelerators, they will help you step-by-step step put together your pitch, understand what your market is, create your MVP, like your minimum viable product, not most valuable player, and see if this idea has legs. So there's a ton of support there out, out there for you. You can even just Google your local township and incubator or accelerator. There's also lots of them online that will now take people virtually. So hit the internet, do some Googles, talk to people about your idea, and you will find the resources there. Networking is your best friend. Never be afraid to ask someone for something that you need help with. And what if you're an older woman like we are? I mean, the incubators sound great, but are they going to be open to older people? 
Absolutely. And, you know, there are even incubators that are particularly focused on women. So Springboard Enterprises, for example, is one started by Kay Kopelvich. She, she was a big um, TV exec, and she has an incubator that's specifically focused on women. There's uh, another one. There's an investor uh, firm called Portfolia. I'm actually an investor in Portfolia. And I their know focus Portfolio. Is, yeah, yep. specifically on women. Um, I'm also a CEO activator. So CEO is another organization that's specifically focused on supporting women. And all of these are open to women of all ages. I was actually a mentor to a 65-year-old woman creating a tech startup. And so, you know, Yes, there might be the sensation that there are barriers or that this is just for the young, but that's not actually the case. When you go to actually build a business, a woman who has had experience in the corporate world is going to do a whole lot better at building and managing a company than somebody who's fresh out of university and has no clue what they're doing. So feel confident that the knowledge and experience that you've gained is going to help you many fold in building a much better, much more stable and much more profitable business than some young kid who's just doing this for the first time. Great place to end. Ariel, perfect. That's wonderful. I'm so glad to talk to you. I think this has been so insightful and just I love I just love your history and I I'm thrilled that they figured out how to make it a Canadian American company. <laughs> I, you know, there's so many Canadians who are, you know, have, have been just wonderful Americans. So it's worked out beautifully. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my joy and pleasure. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ariel Garten, who has created The Muse. And I hope you understand you don't have to be a techno wizard to do a tech piece or a tech product. As she says, you can go out and hire the help, very smart. But you do have to quiet that inner critic. And, and that is the most interesting thing about it. Um, we are gonna bring her in in the fall. She's agreed to do a, uh, a lesson with us. I hope you'll all join us on how to kill your inner critic because boy, is that one of the things we all need. And I hope that if you enjoyed this conversation, you will subscribe and leave us a comment or leave us a few stars. Give us a good rating if you're interested. Pass this podcast along to friends who you think might need some help with reinvention. And also wander over to coveyclub.com. We have so much more on reinvention. We have tips and tricks galore, plus my download, which is called 31 Badass Tips and Tricks for Launching Your Reinvention Without Fear. That will get you started because I know the hardest part is actually putting your first foot into the water and getting going. And actually that is the hardest part. And once you get over that, you will learn and you will grow and you will be really excited about what's next for you. So thank you for listening, and I hope that we see you next time. Take care.